0: Welcome to the Contending for Christ Apologetics podcast, where Danny seeks to empower believers to defend their faith. This fight is internal, defending against false teachings that are creeping into the church as well as our hearts and minds. It is also external, with believers needing to know how they can solidify and defend their beliefs. So sit back and relax as we contend for Christ. Hey everybody, welcome back to C4C Apologetics. I'm extremely excited about today's guest. Today's guest is a powerhouse in dispensational teaching. He's considered the leading expert in messianic theology. Our guest has a Master's of Theology degree from Dallas Theological and received his doctorate at New York University where he wrote his dissertation uh, titled Israelogy, The Missing Link in Systematic Theology. This is actually a book I'm fortunate to have, and it's just opened my eyes to a lot of things as far as the Jewishness of Scripture. Uh, He also authored numerous books, uh, some of them which I personally own, such as Yeshua, the Life of Messiah, a Messianic Christology, the Haggadah, which is steps for the Passover Seder, and the Footsteps of the Messiah. Our guest is the founder of Ariel Ministries and has written extensively on the role of the Jewish people throughout history and the end times. And our guest is Dr. Arnold Frutenbaum. Uh, Your Hebrewness, thank you for giving some of your time for this interview.
1: it's my pleasure
0: before we begin is there is there anything you would like to elaborate on with aerial ministries the ministry God has called you on just a little bit of background and maybe anything else you'd like to personally share
1: sure the ministry began in December 1977 based upon two principles the first principle is sharing the gospel with our Jewish people this is done primarily with our branches around the world. We now have uh, 10 established branches in 10 different countries. Uh, U.S. has got several, but outside the U.S. we have nine, and we have two more soon-to-become branches. And uh, most of them are not far from Jewish communities, so they're within the Jewish community, and they reach out to Jewish community with the gospel. That's uh, much, pretty much what all Jewish ministries does, we're not doing anything unique. But the second element that makes us more distinctive is our emphasis on biblical discipleship, which involves intensive Bible teaching, but we have a special emphasis on teaching the scriptures from a Jewish frame of reference. It's done in our branches, but we have a special summer school program in upstate New York, and the other it that runs for eight weeks, the months of July and August. It has a two-week curriculum, then a three-week curriculum, then a one-week, and then another two-week curriculum. And all our courses are in five-year cycles. You have to come for five summers to get everything we offer. But the one course we teach every year, which is the one-week program in the sixth week of the eight weeks, and that is the Lap of Messiah from the Messianic Jewish context. So get to the Judaism of first-century Israel, and put it in that context when these events took place. And we offer a lot of Jewish backgrounds to a lot of elements that most Gentile believers are never exposed to, like what does it mean to be born again, using that phrase in a Jewish context and so on. And People can come up to the program either for one week or all eight weeks or something in between and get exposed to this kind of teaching. And that's essentially what we are and what we do and we also have a lot of writings and so on as you mentioned they can get to our web page org and look at our what's available we have a lot of stuff available free and not a lot of the stuff you have to pay for but we try to keep the cost down so as many people as um, can can afford it the better
0: exactly that's a Ariel.org, A-R-I-E-L.org. There's a lot of excellent material out there. I know I have quite a few of the books and literature. And so, uh, without further ado, I'd like to just jump into asking you. Got about ten questions here. uh Like okay. I had said, uh, the title of this is really eschatology from a biblical Jewish perspective. And so, really, just right off the bat, it's more of a general question. Uh, Could you explain the different views of pre-tribulation, post-trib, mid-trib, and the pre-wrath tribulation view, and what do you believe is most accurate and why?
1: Well, the term tribulation itself refers to a seven-year period of divine judgment that begins with the signing of a seven-year covenant between Israel and the Antichrist, which guarantees Israel's military security. And that will trigger the seven years of tribulation. And the rapture question is when, in relationship to the tribulation, will the rapture of the body of the Messiah finally occur? So, in uh, pre-tribulationism, it will happen some time before the tribulation starts. We don't know when before. In the past, people have assumed that because the rapture is pre-trib, therefore it must begin the trip. But that's inaccurate. what starts the trip. Will be the starting of the seven-year covenant and the rapture occurs sometime before that how much time before that is something we don't know in mid-tribulationism they believe the first three and a half years is mostly peaceful and the actual wrath of god begins at the midpoint and therefore the rapture will occur at the midpoint just before the beginnings of the wrath of god a view that was now referred to as pre-wrath, tri- uh, that's really a misnomer because all of the tribulation views, rapture and tribulation views are all pre-wrath. It, the difference is when does the wrath of God begin? So those who are asked to take the text more literally, all seven years is the outpouring of the wrath of God. And the mid-tribulationism, The first three and a half years is peaceful, then the wrath of God comes. Now, in the pre-wrath, it will be better named as the three-quarter tribulation view, because that's really what it is, because all four views are pre-wrath. So the so-called pre-wrath view should be the three-quarter tribulation view, where they believe the wrath of God is in the last quarter of the tribulation. So the body will be raptured, they'll be in midair for about a quarter uh, of the tribulation time a year and six months or something like that and um, and then um will come the, the, the return of the church back to the earth and the post-tribulation wrath, the post-tribulation view believes that the wrath is in the very last element of the seven years of tribulation and therefore um, the church will be raptured towards the very end of the tribulation But um, the only view that I think can be substantiated biblically without any um, preconceived knowledge or pre-theological commitments is the um, pre-tribulation rapture of the church. Because when I ask anybody who's mid-trip or um, three-quarter trip or post-trip, ask me the same question. Can you show me in any of the tribulation of any part of it... Where the ecclesia or the Kehilah in Hebrew, uh, the church is mentioned, and in, they can never come up with such a passage because it simply does not exist. There are certain pre-um pre, presuppositions, and they go with those presuppositions. But when you try to force them, where in the text does it put the church in any part of tribulation? This they cannot produce and they have to fall back in the theological presupposition to prove their point, but it's not provable by the simple exegesis of scripture. And that's just one of many reasons why I hold to a pre um rapture. I might also point out the key difference between, uh, the rapture and the second coming is this. this the rapture has no preconditions whatsoever. It can happen any moment of time, even today. But as far as the second coming, God has a major prerequisite. You have to, the whole seven years precedes the second coming. And on top of that, Israel's national salvation is the prerequisite to the second coming. So until all Israel is saved and looks unto the one whom they have once pierced, there is no second coming. That's a key distinction between the rapture and the second coming of the Messiah.
0: Awesome. I, I appreciate that. Uh, this interesting when you had mentioned the pre-wrath and, and the wrath of God and how it's a misnomer. You know, I've never really heard that, and that's fascinating insight. Uh, for those of you who are listening out there i just want to put this out there arnold's got a great sense of humor so when i asked him before as far as any sort of a title uh, he was jokingly around saying you are hebrewness so uh, if anybody's hearing that ca- caught that you know it's, arnold's got a great sense of humor but uh so so the tribulational views are fairly common within the church as far as understanding but uh, a view that's maybe less un, uh, understandable for a lot of people is millennialism. Could you explain pre, post, and a millennialism? In which do you find most biblical?
1: Well, the term millennium is based upon the Greek word for a thousand years, and so it's talking about a thousand-year kingdom. Now, those of us who take the Bible literally, unless the text tells us otherwise we hold to a pre-millennial view, meaning the millennium will not begin until uh, shortly after the second coming, and as Daniel chapter 11 verses 11 through 13 shows, that between the end of tribulation the start of the messianic kingdom will be a 75-day period, so 75 days after the second coming, that's when the messianic kingdom will begin, that's the popular Jewish phrase among Gentiles, they prefer to the word mil, the millennium. And they, and the, um, pre means that the Messiah will come before the kingdom begins and he will be the one to inaugurate the kingdom, which is a natural follow-up to the pre-tribulational view. Those who are post-millennial believe that the church will someday be exceptionally successful and convert the whole world to the Messiah, and then the church will rule the kingdom for a very long time. They don't take the literally, it'll be a long time. At the end of that long time period, the Messiah will return, so the second coming is post-millennium, after the millennium, at the end of the kingdom. And the church will be the one to inaugurate the kingdom. And then um, you have amillennism, which literally means no millennium. In the sense, they don't believe in a literal kingdom on on um, the earth. They believe the millennium is um, symbolic or spiritual. But there's two different ways of interpreting it. Some believe the millennium takes place in heaven when you get to heaven. Others believe the millennium is already now between the first and second coming, but it's not a little millennium. And coming from a Jewish perspective, I would have to say, if we are now living in the millennium, we must be living in the slump section of the millennium. It's not as nice as the Bible (laughs) describes it to be. So the only way to justify believing in the millennium based upon scriptures alone and not a preconceived theology would be that it will be premillennial. And so the Messiah comes back at the end of tribulation and then there'll be a 75-day interval to get the world ready for the kingdom and then the kingdom will be inaugurated for a four thousand year period, and these are the ones who we, we call ourselves pre-millennial.
0: Wonderful. I, I like how you pointed out that there's going to be uh, seems to be a seventy five day interval uh, between the return of Christ and the establishment. And I believe it's Daniel chapter twelve that we could look at the days that Daniel has put in there. I think it's thirteen thirty five one thousand three hundred thirty five days that gives that interval period. So that's fascinating. You see, you, you talked a little bit about it, and then a lot of the focus on the return of Christ or the tribulation period is centered around Daniel 9:24 through 27, which I'd like to read for uh, the listeners real quick. Where Daniel nine 9:24-27 uh, says, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy city, uh, to finish the transgression, make an end of sins, make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy." and to anoint the Most Holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks, and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the Prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined and here's the main verse and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease and for overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate so here in Daniel uh, 9, 24 through 27, specifically in uh, 27, uh, we get the idea of this last week of Daniel, that tribulation period, the seven years. Could you elaborate as to what the purpose of the entirety 70 weeks is or uh, specifically that last seven uh, seven year period? And what could we actually expect to see during that time?
1: Well the actual purpose are to accomplish the six things you find in verse 24, some of which is accomplished by the first coming, but some of it won't be accomplished till the second coming. I might point out that the term weeks is not an ideal translation because the Hebrew word for weeks is the word Shavuot, and so the feast of weeks is the word Shavuot that has a feminine plural ending. But the Hebrew here does not use the feminine, but the masculine ending, Shavu'im. So literally it means sevenths, seventy-sevenths, or four hundred ninety-something. And that something is based upon the context. In the first 23 verses, Daniel has been thinking of years. It's a, It knows that the 70 years that Jeremiah prophesied will soon end with the next two or three years. And therefore, uh, he assumes that's also when the kingdom will be established. But then to correct his misunderstanding, Gabriel is sent, and basically there's a wordplay here, not se- now not 70, but 77th of years for the kingdom to be established. And that includes, first of all, notice that in verse 24 it's focused upon your holy city, meaning Daniel's holy city, that's Jerusalem, and uh, Your holy people, Daniel's people, the Jewish people. So this is not a prophecy concerning the church, which is often the way replacement theology applies it. This is specifically in reference to Daniel's people, the Jewish people, in Daniel's holy city, and that is the city of Jerusalem. And number one, to finish the transgression. And it, in Hebrew, it's a definite article, transgression, to finish a specific transgression they've been guilty of, which is ultimately the rejection of the Messiah. Secondly, to make an end of sins, this is referring to daily sins, and uh, that's committed. And then, thirdly, to make reconciliation for iniquity, and that deals with the sin nature, to to deal with the issues of the sin nature then uh, fourthly to bring in everlasting righteousness and throughout the prophets the messianic kingdom is referred to as the time of righteousness the rule of righteousness that be ruled by the messiah who is uh, Melchizedek, the king of our righteousness and so on and then uh, fifthly the seal of vision and prophecy so what was not fulfilled by the first coming will be fulfilled in the context of the second coming and 60 to anoint the most holy and more literally the most holy place and before the time of daniel ezekiel in the last nine chapters of his book chapters 40 to 48 gave a detailed account of uh, the millennial temple which would be a very distinctive temple and that is the this will be the anointing of the most holy place when the messianic kingdom is established with the millennial temple He then breaks the um, 77s in uh, three different segments. First of all, seven sevens so 49 years, which is the period of time it took to rebuild Jerusalem when they came back from captivity from Babylon. Then after that, another 62 sevens, 434 more years before the arrival of Messiah the Prince. And um, then he and while there was no gap indicated between the first subdivision and the second subdivision. He clearly shows a gap of time between the third, uh, second subdivision and the third subdivision. And he points out three things. First of all, the Messiah will be cut off, which occurred around the year A.D. 30. And then he says, the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And that was something that occurred 40 years after the crucifixion with the destruction roman destruction of the city and the temple which was the second temple what should be noted here it doesn't say the prince that shall come will destroy the city and the temple but the people out of which he will come will destroy the city and the temple historically was the romans who destroyed the city and the temple and therefore the prince that shall come will be a Roman origin. And Daniel uses the definite article because he spoke of him twice before in chapter seven of his book and again in chapter eight of his book. And so the people out of which the Antichrist will rise up from will be the ones who will destroy the city and the temple. Then thirdly, there'll be a long time period of wars and desolations. Because to verse twenty seven he provides the signal that will trigger the last seven years, and he shall um confirm or make strong the uh the covenant with many for one seven the pronoun he goes back to his isto antecedent, which is the prince that shall come, in other words, the prince that shall come of uh, verse twenty six and the one who makes the covenant verse twenty seven the same individual which in Christian circles primarily referred to as the Antichrist. So this tells us the incident that's going to trigger the seven years of tribulation, the signing of the seven-year covenant between Israel and the Antichrist. But in the seven years itself, it's divided into two subdivisions. In that, while the tribulation from divine judgment is also occurring in the first half of the tribulation, and the events of Revelation chapter 6 through 9, happened in the first half. During the first half, the Jews suffered no more and no less than other people. But then what makes the second half distinctive is now there's a special war against the Jews. And the trigger that will cause this to happen is it shall cause the sacrifice and the ablation to cease. Meaning he's going to cause a forced cessation of the sacrifices of the third temple of the tribulation temple, and he will cause the sacrifice to cease, and now he inaugurates the abomination of desolation, where in paul's uh, context of second Thessalonians chapter two, verse three and four, he will sit in the temple of God, sing himself forth as God, but also What is called the abomination of desolation which is when he declares himself to be god from the holy of holies of the third temple that will trigger satan's last attempt to try to annihilate the jews once and for all he will now inaugurate the nazi-like program which will be worldwide to try to annihilate all jews living and according to zechariah chapter 13 verse 8 and 9 he'll succeed in killing one-third of the world jewish population two-thirds of the Jewish population read them, and then the one-third will survive. And they are the ones who will ultimately bring about the second coming. I know that comes up in a later question, so that's as far as i will talk about it for the time being. Wonderful.
0: Thank you. And I'm glad you brought up Zechariah because those minor prophets are are typically books of the Bible that a lot of Christians don't read and they're unfamiliar with, but there's a lot of prophecy in books like Zechariah and Micah and some others. And another fascinating thing is, you know, after the rapture happens, a lot of people believe, okay, rapture happens, seven-year tribulation period from there, but that's not the case, like you said. Uh, The actual beginning of the seven-year period is when this covenant is made by the Antichrist. Uh, Another reason why I believe the church has to be out pre-tribulation, because if the church is here, the church would be aware of who the antichrist is at the signing of that uh, agreement covenant if you will but another thing is we don't really entirely know how long the the break is going to be between the rapture and then the signing of the peace treaty and, and so that's another mystery from my understanding as well i want to stay in the book of daniel for a moment and and in Daniel chapter 11, verses 36 and 37, uh, I understand the first part of chapter 11 is talking about, I believe, Antiochus' uh, the epiphanies, but then it splits off in the second half talking about the Antichrist. And there's a part that's interesting to me. And in verses 36 and 37, it says, And the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. And he shall speak marvelous things against the God of gods, and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished, for that uh, is determined shall be done. Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women. And I want to stop there. Could you explain from a Jewish context, what does it mean that the Antichrist will not have the desire of women does that mean the antichrist would be single uh, homosexual or, or something else what's the jewish insight to that
1: i would put in the uh, something else let me go back to the very first messianic prophecy which is genesis chapter 3 verse 15 and the first prophecy about the coming of the messiah was not given to adam not even to eve but specifically to satan i'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, you shall bruise his head, he, um, he shall, you shall bruise his heel, He shall bruise your head, and so on. He mentions there are two seeds, the seed of the serpent or Satan and the seed of the woman. When you have the same word used twice in the same verse, you need to understand it the same way unless the text tells you otherwise. So if we deal first of all with the seed of the woman, um, Exactly what that meant would have been not that quite, quite clear at that stage of human history, because in all of the genealogies of both testaments, the seed is always traced to the male line, not the female line. Women are either never mentioned or they are mentioned; they are, they are not relevant directly to the the line in the genealogy. So now Satan knows that uh, a descendant of whom he tempted. And cost about the fall of man into sin is something that um, is going to descend to woman and will someday come to defeat him. So, what we see his reaction is Genesis 6, verses 1 through 4. And Genesis 6, 1 through 4 is Satan's reaction specifically to the first prophecy. So, what he does is um, arrange for a unique type of uh, intermarriage. Uh, And you have the two terms sons of god daughters of men in the hebrew text whenever you see the term sons of god it always refers to angels good ones or bad ones always angels now every hebrew scholar agrees with that on other passages but many of them want to make genesis 6 to 1 exception to the rule but there's nothing in the text to imply an exception to the rule so if we follow where the term is used elsewhere then Satan has many of his fallen angels take on human form, and if angels become human, they will appear as young men, often mistaken for young men. He has them intermarrying with human women, producing a race which the Hebrew says the Nephilim. King James reads the word giants, but the Hebrew word for giants is a different Hebrew word, the Anakim. And the word Nephilim simply means a race of fallen ones. And they they were superhuman mentally and physical strength, but nothing unusual about their size and um, What that does is what happens when you cross horses and donkeys. you get a mule, but mules cannot reproduce themselves. The more mules you want, you have to keep on crossing horses and donkeys now suppose you never allow male and female donkeys to mix or male and female horses to mix you only allow male horses and female donkeys in the course of time they get a lot of mules but the horses and um and donkeys disappear and the donkeys and the, and the mules themselves cannot reproduce themselves that's what happens in that intermarriage What they produced was neither angelic or human, something different that can reproduce itself, and he was hoping in this manner to do away with the human race so the seed of the woman could not come. Now, going back to Genesis 3.15, the second seed is the seed of Satan, that should be understood the same way the seed of the woman, a supernatural conception. So what this shows is that sometime in the future, if it hasn't already happened, that Satan will impregnate a Gentile woman of Roman origin and produce his seed. That would be the Antichrist. who be like one of the Nephilim. He cannot reproduce himself and therefore him would have no desire for women anyway. I think that's the best way to explain the the lack of a desire for women based upon the context of the seed of Satan of Genesis 3 and Genesis 6.
0: Awesome. I appreciate that. You know, it's interesting you brought up that uh, Genesis 6 and everything because, you know, the common views are either the fallen angel view or the godly line of Seth and only godly line of Cain. And I would look at, you know, it definitely gives rise to Greek and Roman mythology, all the other mythology, as well as insights to Jude verse six and second Peter chapter two verses forty five, four, and five, which talk about there's a certain group of uh demons that left their estate, and they're currently in everlasting chains ready uh, to be reserved unto judgment. So it's fascinating. So I really appreciate your insight as far as the desire of women is concerned. Now next question. It has to do with the abomination of desolation. It's talked about in Matthew 9.27 in Matthew, uh, Daniel 9.27, Matthew 24.15. What do you believe this abomination clearly is? I've heard a lot of people believe this is like him sacrificing a pig on the altar. Uh, What would be your views as far as what that would look like?
1: There There was a historical abomination of desolation done by Antiochus Epiphanes in the second century BC, about the year one sixty five BC or so. And that was the historical one, but that one lasted for um two thousand three hundred evenings dash mornings. And so that's distinctive from the future one. And the future one is spoken of in Daniel nine twenty seven, also in Daniel twelve verses eleven through thirteen and um, that one will last for exactly 1,290 days. Um, the second half of the tribulation is 1,260 days, but the abomination will look, be allowed to continue for 30 extra days. Now, Antiochus gave us his, his last name as Epiphanes, which means in Greek, the manifest God, so he claimed some degrees of deity. That's exactly what the Antichrist will do. And so what the abomination of desolation involves two things. The first one I mentioned previously in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 3 and 4, that the Antichrist will sit in the temple of God, setting himself for as God. He won't stay in, um Jerusalem. He'll move out to establish his world headquarters elsewhere in the world. And from my view, it will be the literal city of Babylon. But what he will then do with the help of the false prophet is to make an image of himself. The false prophet, with his signs and wonders the second will give, him will make the image alive and be able to speak. And that image will be erected in the um, Holy of Holies of the Tribulation Temple, the Third Temple. And as a result, he'll be worshipped by means of this particular image. And the word abomination generally means something uh, idolatrous. And so it is something standing, something erected. And in the case of Matthew 24, verse 15 and 16, he points out that the abomination he's talking about was still future of his time, so it could not be the same as Antiochus Epiphanes, which was already in history for two and a half centuries. So Antiochus did fulfill the abomination prophecy of Daniel 8, but not Daniel 9 or Daniel 12. In those um, abominations are going to be committed future and so the abomination will continue for 30 days beyond the end of the tribulation before it will finally be destroyed but that will be the abomination Satan declaring himself to be God and then an image made, uh, made of him to worship him through him and the image is, actually comes alive and able to speak and to kill him.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Uh, this next one's going to be kind of a three-part question. I hope you don't mind, but it really has to do with the Jewish remnant. Could you uh, first, could you explain uh, what the understanding is of the Jewish remnant? Uh, number two, uh, where does the Bible actually talk about uh, the Jewish remnant? And then three, what is the purpose of maintaining a Jewish remnant throughout history?
1: as far as the concept of the remnant that basically was true once the jewish people began to multiply following the patriarchal period and into the egyptian bondage as a doctrine it actually begins with Elijah the prophet in first kings chapter 17 and then developed by the prophets essentially they, what they developed is there are two israels there was israel the whole meaning all jews all who are descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Now within the larger Israel was a small Israel, which the prophets refer to as the, that part of Israel actually believed what was revealed to Moses and the prophets. So in the case of Elijah's account, which precedes the actual prophetic period, um, God told him he thought he was the only one left in the Northern Kingdom that was still a believer, but God says no, There were seven others beside you that have not bowed the knee to Baal. So the Northern Kingdom may have half a million, two million people. The actual number or percentage of uh, believers was merely 7,001. The Southern Kingdom probably has more than that. But the Northern Kingdom, that was the limitation. As you move into prophets, especially the prophets like Isaiah and Micah and Habakkuk and some others, they constantly mentioned the remnant. Now in Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah gave his prophecy about the coming of Emmanuel. Emmanuel with his God, the Messiah. In moving to Isaiah chapter 8, he points out that what in his day, Isaiah's day, what distinguished the remnant from the non-remnant. The remnant believed what God had revealed for Moses and the prophets. The non-remnant rejected Moses and the prophets, and began to follow idolatry and occultic practices of various kinds. Um, but the remnant were those who were willing to believe in what God had revealed to Moses and the prophets. Isaiah chapter 8 also prophesied something else, that whenever Emmanuel of chapter 7 arrives, he'll become the new point of division between the remnant and the non-remnant. In that the remnant of the Jews that will accept Emmanuel as the Messiah, the non-remnant will reject him. And so as we are moving to the New Testament, in our two key epistles, um you got Romans chapter, Paul's letter to Romans in chapters 9 through 11, but also 1 Peter chapter 2. Both of them fall back on the remnant doctrine and both quote Isaiah the prophet along their lines pointing out that what Isaiah prophesied has now arrived the remnant now consists of those Jews who do believe that this Yeshua this Jesus is the Messiah the non-remnant are the Jews who reject him as the Messiah but the remnant are those who believe that this is the Messianic person and so the modern day to this day the remnant of Israel is comprised of the Messianic Jewish community And the Messianic Jewish community, regardless of how terms they use, I prefer Messianic Jewish, some prefer Jewish believers or Jewish Christians or Hebrew Christians. But all Jews who believe that this Jesus is the Messiah, this Yeshua is the Messiah, are members of the remnant of this day. And they are fulfilling God's call of Israel, because Israel's call in Exodus chapter 19 was, You shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and the holy nation. Israel as a whole failed to fulfill that calling. The remnant of Israel was not failed, and as as Peter points out using form terms about the remnant from the Hebrew Bible, the Messianic Jewish community today is the believing remnant of today. And the future in the tribulation will be uh, the Messianic Jews who come to faith following the rapture of the church, they make up the remnant of Israel, and um, it is the remnant of Israel that will survive the tribulation, and so on. And then into the messianic kingdom, the remnant of Israel continue their unique identity as being that part of Israel. So basically, Jewish believers have a dual uh, citizenship. On one hand, we are part of the body of the Messiah, and uh, we are the Jewish wing of the body of the Messiah, the Kehillah, the Ecclesia of the Church. But also the remnant of Israel is always viewed as being part of the nation of Israel, not not detached from the nation of Israel, but part of Israel very strongly. And so they have a dual identity. You can see this with the apostles because the apostles in Ephesians chapters 2 and 3 lay with the foundation of the Church and the chief cornerstone was the Messiah, but the apostles and the New Testament prophets laid the foundations, just the rest of us are the building blocks on the foundation. However, in the messianic kingdom, let me go back a bit, at the present age, the future of the apostles is with the body of the Messiah, so when the rapture occurs, the apostles also go. But in the messianic kingdom, what is the role? And the Messiah twice told them, you will sit on twelve thrones and judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And so their role in the kingdom as Jewish believers will be within the mess- within the messianic Israel of that day. And so as to where other Jewish believers will be, it will be in the same place. At the present age, we're part of the body. When the rapture occurs, all believers, both Jew and Gentile, are removed. But in the kingdom, we shall be living in the land and enjoying the land promises god made to the jewish people because we who are believers in yeshua are part of the uh part of the remnant the remnant is always part of israel
0: you know you brought up the uh the messianic kingdom and in the fact of the apostles judging the 12 tribes of israel and you know your book the footsteps of messiah is one of one of my favorite books period and In there you talk a lot about the different characteristics of the Messianic Kingdom as well as like the government structure, the Israeli, uh, if you will, and then a Gentile government structure, just fascinating. So if you're out there listening, I would totally encourage you uh, to check out Footsteps of the Messiah because a lot of the stuff and a lot of the characteristics and what the Messianic Kingdom or the Millennial Kingdom would look like is really overlooked or glossed over by many, but uh, Dr. Frutenbaum goes into quite depths. To reveal a lot of this stuff. Now, regarding the remnant and everything, there's a prophecy uh, concerning a particular location, uh, as far as Petra or Basra is concerned. and Micah prophesies this, and, and John the Reve- Revealer uh, seems to point this as well. It's Micah chapter two, verse two, uh, where Micah says, "I will surely assemble, O Jacob, all of you. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel." I will put them together as the sheep of Basra in the midst of their fold, and they shall make great noise by reason and multitude of men. And then John writes in Revelation, And to the women were given two wings of a great eagle, and she might fly into the wilderness in her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. Uh, what do you believe these verses mean as far as Basra or Petra, and how would this tie into the Jewish remnant?
1: By the way, I think you said Micah two verse two. I believe that that should be Micah two verse twelve.
0: Right, Mac two verse twelve. Yep.
1: Right. Now um, at the midpoint of the tribulation we know that the state of Israel collapse and the abomination that sickness Satan's last attempt to annihilate the Jews will be a sign for the Jews to flee the land. And uh, the mo the main bulk of the leadership and many of the Jews who survived the tribulation are going to make their way into the city of Butzra, which is in the land of the biblical territory of the land of Edom. Today, that would be Southern Jordan. And today, Butzra is better known by its, by its Greek name of Petra. And that will be the city of refuge where the Jews for flee to. And uh, that's also the actual initial place of the second coming, According to Isaiah chapter 34 verses 1 through 7 as well as Isaiah 63 verses 1 through 6. And so it'll be mostly in that, it'll be in that area especially when some members of remnants still in Egypt and in Assyria which is now northern Iraq when they flee. Uh, they will be, um, they're all gonna come to faith in the last three days before the second coming which is uh, based upon Isaiah chap, um Micah chapter 5 verse, um, 15 to chapter 6 verse 3. And that will fulfill the key prerequisite to the second coming, in that the whole nation will come to fate. That's one third of the Jews who survived the tribulation, yet the other two thirds have perished. And so, um the remnant, all Israel at that point becomes the remnant of Israel, which is what the Micah 2.12 emphasizes, it's, it's poetic in that, um, Hebrew poetry is not based upon rhythm or rhyme, but it's based upon parallelism. So, um, line number one, I'll surely assemble, O Jacob, all of you. Line number two, I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. And so the all of Israel and remnant of Israel are the same group because with all Jews coming to faith, uh, all Jews at that point also are members of the remnant of Israel. And um, it is the remnant of Israel that it is this one third that will become believers and therefore become members of the remnant. And that will trigger the last three days before the second coming. But the first two of those days, they'll confess their national sin, of rejecting him. And on the third day, they'll plead for him to return. The words of which you'll find in Psalm 79, Psalm 80, Isaiah 64. And that will bring about the actual second coming of the Messiah.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating stuff. Speaking, speaking about the the repentance of the Jewish remnant and calling him back, I have an interesting view regarding Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, where Paul writes that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now, like I said, I have an interesting view regarding this, and I know a lot of people use this as like a general evangelism passage, but looking at Scripture from a Jewish lens and understanding that Paul transitions chapters 9 through 11 in Romans to really Israeli-centric, Jewish-centric, In that out of the 90 verses, there is quite a bit of Old Testament quotations uh, that Paul pulls up. You know, my particular view of this is a specific requirement for the remnant in the end times to actually recognize the Messiahship of Jesus, to repent and actually vocalize their desire, i.e. confess with their mouth. Uh, What would... What would your views be to this passage? Am I somewhat on the right right track, or am I off in your views? What do you think Romans ten nine and 10 talk about?
1: I've not actually viewed this as being in that context. Um, but um, what this is what they'll be doing just before the second coming of the Messiah, but whether this passage is actually referring to that, I'm not as sure. The main passages I use, for example, is Leviticus um, Chapter twenty six verses forty through forty two. I also use um Jeremiah chapter three, verses eleven through eighteen, Micah chapter five, verse uh fifteen to chapter four uh chapter six verse three, um uh, Zechariah chapter twelve verse ten to chapter thirteen verse one and also Matthew twenty three verses thirty seven to thirty nine. But if you um so what you will notice is that what's closely required from those other passages is the requirement of verses 9 and 10. So I think that's a valid application. I'm not sure it's the valid um, evidence for that. There's definitely a valid application for it. Okay, I just wanted
0: to throw it out there uh, to you as uh, one of the leading experts in this field and uh, so. Yeah, it may not be the correct interpretation per se, but maybe a application. I'm not done fully studying that out, but I just found that fascinating. But uh, like I said, I think you've already alluded to this uh, question. A lot of people believe Jesus Christ is just going to return whenever it's just time. And a lot of people misunderstand the idea of what imminence means. And like you had said earlier, Uh, that the rapture, there are no signs that necessarily need to be fulfilled for the rapture to happen. However, there are signs for the second coming of Messiah to come back. Uh, Could you explain your thoughts, and and if you already did, just briefly just touch it back up again, uh, your thoughts as to what must occur and what will be the requirement of the Jewish people for his return that we see in Revelation 19? And I know you talked a little bit about them acknowledging him as a Messiah, so could you... Maybe talk a little bit about the unpardonable sin, and then the the singular iniquity of Jacob that has to be purged, according to Isaiah
1: oh the uh, unpardonable sin as uh, spelled out in uh, Matthew chapters twelve and thirteen it is dealing not with individual sin, and there's no individual that can as long as he's living is not savable. And in his lifetime, he never crosses the point of no return. Once he dies, then there's no further opportunity to be saved. But uh, nobody would have believed, and many people didn't believe, that Paul was actually saved in the first century, but there he was. And, and so on, the one who was persecuting the Messianic Jews himself became one. So, um, far as uh, uh imminency and things of that nature it just, it just simply means nothing has to precede it nothing has to precede it and the unpardonable sin itself is a national sin not individual in the context of matthew 12 and 13 we can define it in this manner it is israel's national rejection of the Messiahship of yeshua Messiahship of jesus while he was present on the grounds of being demonized and that's exactly what you've seen in verses twenty-two to twenty-four of Matthew twelve, which in turn leads to his um uh declarative statement that they have now committed the unpardonable sin. And the judgment of the unpardonable sin is not that no longer could be saved, because Paul would have been uh among those who would have said that about Jesus till he got saved. But um and again, it's not an individual sin. And when Jesus died, he died for every kind of sin uh the, the person commits, not just some sins, but all sins. But as a nation, and especially as the generation of Jesus' day, they're guilty of the unpardonable sin and therefore the offer of the Messianic kingdom is now rescinded or withdrawn. And on top of that they are facing a special divine judgment which will happen 40 years later with roman destruction of the city and the temple and the forced dispersion of the jewish people around the world and dispersion has continued to this day there's still more jews outside the land than inside the land but that is uh, the consequences of that sin now once 70 ad happened that was the judgment So any Jewish generation after A.D. 70 that will confess the national sin and plead for him to return, that will bring about the second coming. And prophetically from the Bible, that will happen with the Jewish generation living in the tribulation. They're the ones who will come to faith. They will confess the national sin of rejecting him on the grounds of being demonized. And they are the ones who will then plead for the Messiah to return.
0: Wonderful, thank you. Uh, Throughout history, it seems like uh, the Jewish people and the nation of Israel has always been a part of some of the worst persecutions and trials. And I personally believe, studying other religions, that Islam is more satanically influenced uh, than most other false religions, because in numerous portions of the Quran, in their tenets, in which they are specifically called to uh, go against the Jews or the people of the Book. Why do you believe Israel and the Jewish people are so harshly treated? Does it all go back to Genesis three fifteen and, and Satan's attempt to destroy the seed of the woman?
1: That's actually the actual the actual uh, first attempt, because Satan knows the precondition to the second coming, which is was national salvation. So if in one way or another he can destroy the Jews before they have a chance to come to faith, to confess their national sin, to plead for his return, there'll be no second coming. So he's had this war against the Jews in particular since Abraham, where Jewish history begins. But the seeds of it the Genesis 3.15. And um, the goal was in different ways. But then... He failed to keep the Messiah from coming. So now he has especially organized throughout history attempts to annihilate the Jews once and for all. That's why things like the Crusades occurred. That's why things like the, um, the, uh, Russian uh, pogroms occurred and the Nazi Holocaust occurred. Then that's why the, um, Crusaders, Crusader slaughtered the Jews occurred. And that's why Revelation chapter 12, verses 12 and 13, point out that once Satan is in the tribulation, he knows his time is short. How short? Three and a half years before the second coming is scheduled. And knowing his time is short, he organizes this worldwide Nazi-like, worldwide attempt to annihilate the Jews once and for all to avoid the second coming. And according to Zechariah 13, 8 and 9 1389 will succeed to killing two-thirds of the world jewish population one third is left and they're the ones who have in their hands the secret to the second coming which they will fulfill
0: excellent so one final question is there anything further you'd like to say about this topic jewish eschatology or anything
1: well, if people want a complete detail, this is the book you mentioned, The First Steps of the Messiah, which is subtitled, A Study of the Sequence of Prophetic Events. And I think everything we talked about on this interview is somewhere in that book as well. And we encourage if people are interested in these Jewish type, Messianic type studies, they can get it by going to our webpage. And a lot of literature available to them, a lot of it for your charge, I can download. I also recommend um, to in, uh, look for the uh, School of Messianic Jewish Studies. There should be an icon for Camp Shoshana or the School of Messianic Jewish Studies on the Shoshana campus, which is in upstate New York. And um, you can come for any of those curriculums, the two-week, the one-week, the three-week, and this last two weeks. And you're back, you're welcome to attend as long as you're, you're free to come and things of that nature. We have, by the way, it's an adult program, but if you have children, bring your children with you. And we have um, a youth program and the curriculum for the youth and the children is the same. It's simplified more for them, but it's also the same for them. So when you meet around the, uh, lunch table, dinner table, then you have things to discuss with your own children and so on. So you'd be welcome to attend. It's a unique program, and it's not all that expensive. And the, the prices we, we give requires, um, covers all the accommodations, three meals a day, as well as all of the uh, teachings and studies and handouts we give out. And also with it, come the many Jewish jokes, we can tell you.
0: Awesome. You said that was Camp Shoshana?
1: It's called, a, it's called a program of Messianic Jewish Studies at the Shoshana campus. We don't call it a camp anymore. People think it's like just a camp with okay. some kids, too, but that's not what we are. We are a full grown school.
0: Okay, wonderful. Excellent. Arnold, again, thank you so much for making time out of your busy day to just go over this topic in, in uh, end times and Jewish flavor and eschatology. And uh it, it was funny. never lose your sense of humor, your Hebrewness. I really that just made my day right there. I was having a rough day today and when you were talking to me about that, that was I appreciate that. Know that we pray the best for you in Ariel and aerial ministries and for anybody that's listening, again, I, I just pray that this information is enlightening to you, that It challenges you to consider your presuppositions and to see the actual biblical teaching of the Jewish context of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, the Jewish remnant, the role of eschatology, the second advent of Yeshua. If you want more information as to what God actually has to say about the Jewish people, their history and role, again, go check out Ariel Ministries at ariel.org, A-R-I-E-L dot O-R-G. And as always, I do thank you for checking in. God bless.
1: Thanks for listening. We pray this ministry glorifies God and edifies you, the listener. For more great content, including videos, blogs, newsletters, and a free ebook, check out our website at c4capologetics.weekly.com. You can also email us at c4capologetics at gmail.com with questions or ideas for future episodes. We truly appreciate you. Please like, share, and comment on this episode, and don't forget to subscribe for future episode notifications. Thanks for checking in, and remember to be bold and keep contending for Christ.